doing happy easter okay it's a week late but we can still say happy easter because he is risen amen isn't that awesome our savior is risen from the grave but you know before there was an easter there was a good friday and while the tomb is empty which we do celebrate and we you know make a lot of noise and we smile and are thankful and all those things while that is all true we need to remember that there would never have been any grave clothes in an empty tomb if there had not first been someone sent to the grave because of his love for you and me that he demonstrated on the cross. And so as we have done now for the last month or so, I want to continue to look at the cross that is behind me or the one that Jesus died on 2,000 or so years ago. There's a prison in Brazil where inmates for a significant number of years were transformed by the power of the cross, unlike anything I've really ever heard of before. I want to share with you the story. The late Charles Colson, who himself went from being a convicted criminal to a uh, renowned prison evangelist, once told the story of the prison in San Jose dos Campos, Brazil. The story is that the prison leadership was turned over to two Christian laymen, just volunteers who, who came in and ran the prison on simple Christian principles. Every prisoner was assigned another prisoner to whom he was accountable. Every prisoner attended chapel and took classes on character development based on scriptural teachings. Uh, everyone was required to learn a trade and to make restitution to victims. And every prisoner was also assigned to a volunteer family from the outside that would pray for him and work with him during and after his time in prison. And, and after visiting this prison in person, Chuck Colson um, wrote this. He said, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who opened the gates and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas. I saw people working industriously. The walls were decorated with Bible verses. Now, let me share with you an amazing statistic about this prison. Um, over the preceding 25 years, only 4% of the former inmates of that prison reoffended and returned to prison after being released. Only 4%. The Brazilian national recidivism rate was almost 90%. Uh, for all other prisons and all other inmates in those others. Um, so how, how does that happen? How could this be? Well, Colson went on to explain this. He said, I saw the answer when the inmate assigned to show me around escorted me to the notorious punishment cell, a cell once used for torture. But today that cell block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of the long concrete corridor, he put the key in the lock, uh, paused, and then asked me, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly, he swung open the massive door, and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, a crucifix, skillfully, meticulously hand-carved by the inmates, the prisoner, Jesus, hanging on the cross. Colson's guide softly told him, he's doing time for all the rest of us. 
Now, if that system works so well in Brazil, the logical question is, well, why doesn't that get duplicated or uh, copied here in the U.S. or other places where prison systems are not so effective? And I don't know all the answers, but I think part of that, maybe the main part of that is the truth that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when the Bible says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so in many cases, human pride or arrogance or other things like that lead to countless people ignoring or doubting or explaining away the power of God's love, the power of the cross. But what has happened in that prison is incredible. The cross has an awesome power. An awesome power, not just to forgive our sins, but to transform our lives. And that's good news, not just for those prisoners in Brazil, but for you and me today here in Colorado, free to come and go as we wish. Our sins can not only be forgiven by the cross, um, but the power of the cross can also do other great things. Our, our sinful habits can be overcome. Negative attitudes can be reversed. Um, Strained relationships can be mended. Objectionable personality traits can be refined. Dangerous temptations can be resisted. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes that clear. The power of the cross is unbelievable and can do incredible things if we allow God to work through it in our lives. So while we celebrate the empty tomb, I want us to again look at the cross this morning as we finish this series that we began about a month before Easter with two more messages um, post-Easter. And today I want us to look at the cross from the perspective of some bystanders who were there literally, physically, in the flesh about 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to a cross much like the one behind me and died for you and for me. Now, the people that we're going to talk about today did not know when they got up that morning that anything special or out of the ordinary was going to happen to them, but their lives were completely changed, completely turned upside down and transformed by what happened to them that day. Their lives would never be the same, and, and that same transforming of power is, is available to you and me today as well. Maybe you will look back someday at today as the day that God got a hold of your heart for the first time and turned you upside down in a way like never before. Well, one of these unsuspecting bystanders that we want to look at today is a man named Simon, Simon the Cyrene. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me, or if you want, you can follow along on the screen or in the bulletin you were handed. But look at Mark chapter 15 and notice that Simon was transformed from a casual observer to an active participant. Mark 15, verse 21, a certain man named Simon, uh, from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about him, but we, we know certain things. Uh, Cyrene was a fairly large city in Libya, North Africa. It had a very large Jewish population. And evidently, Simon, who most would presume was probably a black African Jewish man, uh, had traveled all the way from uh, his home country to Jerusalem 
presumably to want to experience the Passover in the holy city of Jerusalem, maybe for the first time in his life. You know, he lived elsewhere, and he wanted to come and, and in the holy city take, um, uh, partake in the Passover meal. But on that Friday morning, he got caught up in the pedestrian traffic like so many others. People had lined the streets to watch this march toward execution. Everybody likes to see, you know, something crazy like that that's happening. And so it was like a parade. And he was there in the middle of the parade to just watch what was happening, uh, a march toward execution by a man that many, including possibly Simon, knew very little about. But they were there to see the show. And evidently, Jesus of Nazareth carrying his cross to Golgotha was so exhausted from the scourging and the beating that he had endured by the Romans that he literally physically could not go on. And he dropped and he fell, unable to move forward right there in front of Simon. Now, the Roman soldiers had the authority to, cons to conscript any citizen they needed into temporary service of Rome. And so when they looked into the crowd, they picked Simon. Maybe coincidentally, maybe as many would guess, because Simon was big, he was strong, he was, you know, somebody who looked like he could handle more than others. And so one, for one reason or another, we don't know that, but they said, you, come here, carry the cross for him. Now, I'm sure Simon didn't want any part of this humiliating and bloody scene. He wasn't there to participate he was there just to watch. But this unsuspected and unwanted close encounter with Jesus transformed Simon forever. I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing maybe he looked into Jesus' eyes and saw something, saw a love and a compassion like he had never seen before. He saw his wounds up close, we can bet on that. We can bet on the fact that he got Jesus' blood all over him, all over his hands, all over his clothes as he carried that cross that Jesus had already bled all over. And maybe, just maybe, he heard Jesus whisper a quiet, thank you, when they finally reached Golgotha. And he, as he watched the rest of the scene play out that day, his life was changed from a casual observer what he planned on being that day, to an active participant. And I, I am confident of that. I think he was eternally changed, forever changed, because when Mark later writes, as we're reading here about him, um, Mark says, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Did you catch that? That's a noteworthy and interesting detail. You know, if I were to point out to you someone and say, hey, hey, um, uh, this man here is the father of... of um, Billy Graham, you'd be like, wow, are you serious? And now, if I'd have said, this is the father of John Smith, you'd be like, okay, whatever, who's that? Wouldn't matter to you, but if I said, this is the father of Billy Graham, you'd be like, wow, filled with respect and admiration. And so, when Mark says Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, it was evidently because everyone in the church knew exactly who Alexander and Rufus were. That's, I mean, it's kind of like a Christian cool way to name drop. You know, same dro sometimes I guess name dropping's okay, and that's what was happening here. Paul later said in Romans 16, and remember, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New Testament or so. He said, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, 
who has been a mother to me as well. Theologian Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary, It seems likely that this humiliating experience resulted in Simon's conversion, as well as the conversion of his family. Simon came to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb, and instead he met the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for him. You know, some people today feel like they are drafted into the service of Jesus. They don't feel like they have much of a choice, just kind of thrust upon them. Tony Evans is a, uh, a great preacher, author. In fact, if you ask Chad Young down here, our, our uh, youth pastor, who his favorite pastor in the world is, he'd probably say Tony Evans, which, by the way, we need to talk about that. But um, no, just kidding. <laughs> That's fine. Tony Evans is an incredible man, and he, he uh, has often talked about how when he was a teenager, he had a drug problem. He explained it like this. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a serious problem. I was... Drugged to church every Sunday morning, drugged to church every Sunday night, and over and over, you know, and maybe you feel that way. You know, those convicts in the prison in Brazil had to go to chapel. They had to have accountability partners. They had to learn about Jesus. But somewhere along the line, similar to Simon, the had to became a want to, and they enjoyed, they embraced, and you know, that's, you know, they were not bound by any of those things when they got released from prison, and yet those things stuck, right? And some of you, like Tony Evans or me, I'm in a similar boat, you know, are, are those who did not choose to get up and go to church, whether that be this morning, you know, if you're a young person, or maybe it be in your memory back when you were a young person, you know, years ago. Maybe you can relate to that concept. Your parents decided it all for you. You had to come to church just like I did as a kid, or like Tony talked about. And, and yet, I'll tell you this, while there are times I look back in my life and I can remember resenting that, questioning that, rebelling against that, oh, come on, Mom, come on, Dad, you know, and that kind of thing, I now look back on that as a grown man and I go, oh, dear God, thank you for my parents who, who brought me to church, sometimes against my will, and not only that, but they prayed for me without failing. I mean, consistently, they loved me and tried to teach me God's ways and God's word. And oh, I thank God for them because it became not a have to, but a want to thing over time. And maybe you are in a similar boat. Maybe it's like that, or maybe it's different. Maybe you had to curb your language so that you could play on a church softball team. Or maybe you, you had to promise to go to church with her so, and her parents, so that her dad would let you ask her on a date. Or, or maybe, you, um, maybe you had a, a friend who gave you a ride, but you had to listen to a sermon in the car because, hey, you're in his car and you're his prisoner, and he put it in, and what, are you, what else are you going to do? You know, or maybe you, maybe you were flat on your back in a hospital, and some Christian, maybe a pastor, came in and wanted to talk and pray with you, and what were you going to do? I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. You were stuck. You had to listen. Anyway, if any of those, you know, are things you can relate to, you're like Simon and you felt like you were drafted into the Lord's service. You can relate to what Jesus says in John 15 when he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Maybe you came to church today or sometime in the past, or like I said, the softball scenario or whatever it is, and you felt pressure to sign up or follow along or 
whatever it is. But maybe rather than resenting that, you need to understand that that's the best thing that could have ever happened to you. And you praise God for that. Just like Simon, while you initially picked up the cross reluctantly, you now carry it willingly and you are letting it change your life. And if that's you, can I encourage you to go home this afternoon and thank God. Get on your knees and thank God for those people, whoever it is, mom, dad, whoever it is, softball coach or whoever it is, and say, oh, dear God, thank you for that person. And beyond that, if possible, talk to that person, preferably in person. Or maybe it's with a phone call or a letter or whatever and say, thank you, mom, dad, whoever it is. Thank you for guiding and leading and helping and believing in me. Another bystander that was transformed by the cross that day was the Roman centurion. Most remember his story. He's the man who was transformed from a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. From a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. Mark 15 verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. The centurion was the commander of the Roman execution squad. Now, the Gospels tell us that, this Roman, that the Roman soldiers brutalized Jesus. They struck Him with their fists, Scripture says. They spit on Him. They, worse of all, they beat Him with a whip called a cat of nine tails that many people even died when they were beat with because it was so brutal. Um, and this centurion was part of all that, led the way. He let his men have their sport with this, what they would have considered just some Jewish, you know, insurrectionist whose life they probably didn't value as much as their pet dog. But watching Jesus through this hazing experience, this man was impressed. He began to have a change of heart, a change of perspective. Here was a man of incredible composure, dignity, and grace, even in the presence of death, death by torture. This guy had surely heard many others pray for mercy, cry out in pain, but he had surely never heard anybody cry out for the forgiveness of those who were brutalizing him. And yet that's what he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He'd never witnessed the sky turn so black as it did in the middle of that day. And when the ground trembled beneath his feet, his soul trembled at the feet of Jesus. And so when Jesus breathed his last and said, it is finished, this hardened, calloused soldier bowed his head and said those words, surely this man was the Son of God. You know, over the years, the cross has changed countless people from hostile skeptics to humble believers. This guy wasn't the first. He definitely wasn't the last. Saul of Tarsus in the Bible persecuted many Christians. In fact, he was there when Stephen became the first martyr. Um, Saul was there, you know, leading the way. Saul threw many other Christians in prison, did all kinds of terrible things because he thought Jesus was an imposter. But then he met Jesus, the real Jesus, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus came to him, blinded him with light, and he dropped him to his knees and said, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Who? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. 
And Saul's life was changed. He began going by his Roman name, Paul, and he went on to be one of the greatest tools God has ever used or worked through. He wrote roughly half of the New Testament. He went from being a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. And he's just one of many. C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard that name. The great theologian and author was once a hostile skeptic. He only became a humble believer after he investigated the truth and met the real Jesus in large part due to his friendship with another famous Christian, a man named J.R.R. Tolkien. Josh McDowell, who wrote many incredible books like More Than a Carpenter, and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I mean, incredible books um, about apologetics and believing in God and trusting in Him. Josh was a former atheist who became a Christian when he met the real Jesus through a bold young female student in his class who once challenged him, the teacher, to try and consider Jesus, not just religion, which is what he had been rejecting. Lee Strobel, maybe you've heard that name, a former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He became a follower of Jesus after being an atheist for many years when his wife challenged him to use his investigating skills as a reporter to look into the truth of Jesus' claims and the truth of what the Bible teaches rather than just stand by his skeptical, relatively uninformed assumptions, which is what many atheists do. They reject things they don't really know a lot about. That's where Lee Strobel had been, and when he looked into it and really investigated it to find the, find the strength behind his reason for atheism, instead, God melted his heart. And when he read the Bible and looked into the truth, what he thought was not truth became clear that it was truth. And there are many, many others, some famous, some less famous, but all transformed by an encounter with the real Jesus, which takes people from being a humble or from being a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Again, 2 Corinthians 5:17. If you are skeptical, I challenge you to also have enough integrity to truly investigate the history and the power of the cross and the resurrection and of God's love for you through the evidence of Jesus dying on a cross for you as expressed throughout all of Scripture. Don't be like most atheists that I've met. There are, I'm sure, others um, that might not always fall in this boat, but so many that I have met are people like Lee Strobel was, people who very vehemently, strongly disagree and claim atheism and denounce Christ and, and don't believe in the Bible and say it has all kinds of contradictions, and yet they've never even really investigated it. They've never read very much of it. They've read little here and there out of context. Don't be like that. I challenge you to have the integrity to read the whole book, to investigate the truth of God's Word and His love for you. Most people who do that are usually doing so just in their humanness. You know, maybe it's stubbornness, maybe it's laziness, maybe it's arrogance. But I would encourage you to think about this old Turkish proverb that says, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, don't ever hesitate to turn back. I mean, if you realize it's not the, the right road, you realize there is a right road, don't ever hesitate to turn back. Let me close by looking at two more bystanders at that scene some 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for us. Their names are Joseph and Nicodemus. 
They were transformed from secret disciples to bold defenders. John chapter 19, verse 38 says this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but, here's the key word, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. We'll look at that in a minute. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there, both of them. Together, Joseph and Nicodemus. Both of these men were members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the highest court among the Jewish people, about 70 men generally in all. So they were both highly respected, well-off, influential, well-respected, all these things. But both of them had been impressed with Jesus and moved by Jesus, come to believe in Jesus, but only doing so from a distance. Because again, their peers all look down on Jesus and his followers. And to go against the flow of that powerful group, the Sanhedrin and all the Pharisees that were in it, to go against them could bring about great consequence. We would have to do so at great risk. So while Joseph and Nicodemus liked what they saw and they believed in Jesus and what they heard from him, they, they appreciated, they only followed him at a distance. They kept their relationship with him quiet and in the shadows. And the famous third chapter of John, which we'll look at in a little bit, records that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, presumably because, again, he didn't want to be seen in the daylight with Jesus. That'd be too dangerous. So he came under the cover of night so that nobody would see him. But John chapter 7 records that this Sanhedrin, this Jewish court, met at one point to plot against Jesus. I mean, they just so desperately wanted to kill him, you know, at least to shut him up, but really to kill him because he, because he threatened everything they stood for, their position, their wealth, their power, their influence, all these things. And so they, in the middle of John chapter 7, are having this debate, this argument about, or this actually just a meeting to talk about how they can shut Jesus up, shut him down. And kind of in the middle of the conversation, we pick it up here, verse 45. Finally, the temple guards were, uh, went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Referring to Jesus. And they said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any one of the rulers or the, or the Pharisees believed in him? No, they, that person speaking said. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Now, notice here then, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had just been referenced by the one who was speaking, said, no, none of us believe in him. Nicodemus knew that was not true. Uh, uh, actually, I, yeah, I do. Now, he didn't say it that way. He definitely didn't say, hey, whoa, stop. Yes, I do believe. I'm one of us, and I believe in Jesus And we were wrong to crucify him, and he is the son of... No, he didn't say any of that. Look at what he did say, verse 50. 
Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own, one of the Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Again, notice, Nicodemus doesn't stand up boldly for Jesus and say it was wrong to crucify him. He is the son of God or any of that. He just basically says, well, hang on, everybody. Let's be rational and think about this. Let's make sure we treat this Jesus fairly and look at things from both sides of the coin. Well, they responded, verse 52, immediately, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They wanted to shut him down and he was pretty quick to let them. They had way too much to lose to even consider the possibility that Jesus might be who he really who he claimed to be, who he said he was. Whereas Nicodemus did believe, he just wanted to kind of ride the fence, though. He didn't want to put both feet in because of the danger that that might bring. Senator Everett Dirksen from Illinois, I don't know if you've heard that name, was a skillful politician, though, who knew how to avoid conflict, as a lot of politicians might learn. When repeal of prohibition was an issue for Dirksen as a young senator back in the 1920s, Dirksen was quoted to have said this when the opposition tried to corner him on that very controversial topic that he didn't want to get in trouble with. He said, well, only last night while my wife was finishing a needlepoint of the American flag, we had a long talk about this very subject. And I said to her, and I say to you now without hesitation, some of my friends are for prohibition. Some of my friends are for repeal. And I say, let the chips fall where they may. I stand with my friends. <laughs> you know, you get the impression that Nicodemus was kind of like that senator. Now, let's just look at this from both sides of the fence. Let's, you know, let's not rush to judgment here. Let's make sure we're fair he believed in Jesus, but he wasn't willing to take a stand for him. But a short time later, things changed dramatically. When he saw the courage and strength of Jesus who went to the cross and died, when he saw how Jesus endured and willingly gave up his life for others, something changed. That cross brought a boldness in him. In fact, in both of these men, not only him, not only Nicodemus, but also Joseph of Arimathea. They both realized they had waited too long. They had been cowards, and they knew it was now time to, to make their loyalty to Jesus clear. It was time to save their souls, not just, not just their skins. You know, I don't know how you see this, but I bet Nicodemus vividly remembered Jesus' words to him when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross. There was a conversation that I think probably rang in his mind. It comes from that, again, famous John chapter 3. I don't know if you remember what he said to him, but Nicodemus had come to Jesus under the cover of night and asked him some good questions. And Jesus talked with him, and part of what he said, we'll pick it up in verse 14, part of what he said was this, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, 
Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Don't you think that maybe those words rang in Nicodemus's ears and his mind as he watched Jesus be lifted up on the cross just as he had prophesied? Mark's gospel says that Joseph boldly went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Boldness was not a word to describe him up until this point. And again, John says that two of the, the two of these guys took Jesus' body off the cross, wrapped it in spices and strips of linen cloth, and then buried him in a tomb that had never been used before. All of this in bold daylight. It's a big deal. Bold daylight in front of their peers as opposed to trying to hide and dance around questions and all of that. With boldness now, they stood for Jesus in front of their peers who were undoubtedly looking at them with contempt and judgment and condemnation. But they weren't afraid anymore because they had been transformed from secret disciples to bold defenders. The cross can do the same for you and I as well. It should do the same for you and I as well. In the book of Acts, Peter and John were told by the officials in Jerusalem, this was just after Jesus had risen from the grave and uh, ascended back into heaven. Peter and John were boldly preaching the truth of Jesus. You crucified him and telling people to repent and all these kinds of things. And they were told, to, shut up, no more of this. And they said, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which, by which we must be saved. And verse 13 of that chapter says, when, they saw, when the people saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Doesn't that describe most of us in here, ladies included? Unschooled and ordinary they were astonished and they took note of these men, that these men had been with Jesus. You see, the point is, the closer you get to Jesus, the bolder you will become for Jesus. If you're not very bold for Jesus, let me honestly and, and humbly, because I've been there with you, but let me honestly and humbly ask you, if you're not feeling like you're very bold for Jesus, let me ask you to look in the mirror and say, how close am I really to Jesus? I think the closer we get to Jesus, just like Peter and John who were unschooled and ordinary men, the closer we get to Him, the more bold we will become for Him. If you struggle and sometimes hesitate to stand up for Jesus at certain crossroads in your life, can I encourage you? Can I beg you to look at the cross and say, next time, Lord, next time I come to one of those crossroads where I've waffled or hesitated, Lord, would you help me to, re to remember the cross when I come to that crossroad and to make the right choice and stand up for you? If you can die for me, surely I can stand up for you. We all need to memorize and live out Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which says, I am not ashamed. Paul said this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, which is you and I. Now, your boldness for Jesus might take different forms. Maybe for you it comes in a classroom as a young person or maybe even as a teacher. 
Maybe it's in a, um, in a courtroom or in some other political world where, where you stand up for Jesus' name and God's holy word, even though that's not politically correct or popular and may result in some kind of consequence that it's not what you really want. Maybe your boldness will be to stand up to friends or relatives or family members who, who think it's okay. Maybe they even think it's funny to, to get drunk or tell inappropriate unwholesome jokes or watch pornography or gossip about others or the list could go on and on. And maybe your boldness is to stand up in that group that you're comfortable in and instead of just playing both sides and kind of, you know, not partaking but not really contradicting or saying anything either to stand up and say, you know what, I, I don't think that's right. I think we need to do something different. Maybe your boldness needs to show up by you having the guts to have the conversation. You know what I mean? With that friend or that neighbor, that coworker, maybe it's family member. And you have the guts to find a way to bring it up and to say, can, can I tell you about Jesus and why I believe in it, why I've committed my life to him? We've never had that talk, but I, I just, I got to, can we just please, can I just talk to you a little bit? Let me just tell you. I don't have all the answers, but let me just tell you how Jesus has changed my life, why I love him with all my heart, why I'm committed to him. You've been scared to death to do it. You've felt God laying it on your heart to do so, but you have not done it. And maybe it's time for you to be bold. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be ashamed of him when he comes to his glory in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Christ can and will and wants to transform any of us who are struggling as secret disciples to become bold defenders as we get closer to the cross. There are a number of people that I admire in that context. You know, I've been watching the NFL draft the last couple of days. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has been paying attention. It's kind of interesting to see what's going to happen. I was curious about what the Broncos are going to do. They got a new quarterback. I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, hopefully that'll work out well in a year or two or whatever. But no matter what, my favorite Bronco quarterback of all time is not the greatest one we've ever had, which is John Elway. I mean, he was most talented, won two Super Bowls. My favorite's still Tim Tebow. He wasn't the most talented guy. You know, his career was only about that long, and he, got, he took a lot of flack for, you know, not being all that accurate as a passer and all those things. But the reason he's my favorite is not because of what he did on the football field. It's because how, of how he stood up for Jesus continues to stand for Jesus without hesitation, saying, I am a Christian. I'm a virgin until I got married. I might be 30 years old getting married as a virgin. And people are like, are you serious? What is wrong with you? You know, all those kinds of things. And yet he unashamedly just said, that's who I am because I believe in Jesus, because I trust in his word and I have surrendered my life to him. I love that about Tim Tebow. There are others like him. Reggie White, another football player from years ago, Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I was reading an article about him this week. He, um, he had ability and potential after he was done, you know, and he's getting ready to go into the Hall of Fame and all that, to be a, a broadcaster. I forget with who, maybe NBC, but whoever it was, he was going to do that. And he didn't end up getting the job. He doesn't know for sure why, but I would guess it was maybe because he was quoted at one point to have said this just before that. 
He said, if a person doesn't believe in the Bible or the principles laid out in Scripture, they're going to have a problem with what I have to say because I am a Christian and I'm not ashamed. I, that's who I am. I'm not here to beat anybody up or beat people over the head with the Bible, but I'm not going to back away from truth. I'm not going to hide who I am. And there's so many others like that, football players, but other non-athletes, people that are just like you and me. Some of you are already there. Some of you need to get there. Now, I'll tell you this. Being bold is not the same as being fearless. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is action in the spite of fear. And if you will allow God to help you, and if you will keep your eyes fixed on the cross, God will give you all the boldness and courage you could ever need. I want to ask you if you would to stand with me. The band's going to lead us in one last song. Today, maybe you need to be, maybe you need to be transformed, first of all, from a casual observer to an active participant. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you need to go from being a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. Or most importantly, maybe you're already there and you need to go from being a secret disciple, a secret disciple to a bold defender. If that's you, I just want to encourage you. Would you... Would you come up here as we sing this song and maybe you need to just kneel and pray, but would you come and talk to me, tell me, I would love to pray with you or let somebody else pray with you, encourage you, help you with whatever your decision might be, whatever it looks like, but let's sing and let's worship God. And if you have a decision to make, let's make it today, right here, right now. Let's sing and let's worship. Where